0: So the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns, The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Let's just take a glance at her fate in chapter 19. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, those of us who have been here regularly over the last weeks have become familiar with the the vivid imagery which uh, this book uses. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us some sobriety and caution as we try to understand what you're saying, not reading into these images more than they require of us. But perhaps more than that, Lord, we ask that you would give us a sense of the vividness of what John wants to tell us. We live, Lord, in a world that is full of shades of gray we ask lord that the color and clarity that this book gives us would uh, permeate our whole understanding of this world and therefore would motivate us more profoundly to serve you and follow you and be faithful to you please then lord we pray open our eyes and hearts and minds, that we may be your people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Actually, this week the major television companies released the television schedules for the Christmas period. I don't know whether you were aware of that. I gather that ITV, have decided to broadcast three episodes of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on the evening of Christmas Day. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've always loved uh, our game shows. 24, uh, 25 years ago, it was Bruce Forsythe with the generation game who was on Christmas Day. But uh, it seems these days... That the really popular game shows that are focused more and more on just the acquisition of wealth, more things for us. It's actually a generation ago that uh, Eric Fromm, who's not a Christian, alerted us to that in his uh, book To Have or To Be. He pointed out that we tend these days to define ourselves in terms of our jobs and our possessions rather than in the type of person that we are. He suggested that we do dehumanize ourselves in that process and that we can rediscover our humanity if we re our lives around who we are rather than on simply uh, the, the gratification of our physical uh, desires and appetites. He even suggested that our language betrays us sometimes. For instance, he said, in the area of sexual in- intimacy, modern people tend to speak about having sex rather than making love. See, make- making love suggests uh, cultivating an intimate relationship between two people so that their mutual affection is, uh, is made the stronger. Having sex suggests that both parties are acquiring some commodity for themselves that they can have. And he says that that simple shift in the language that we use betrays actually quite a deep shift in our attitude to ourselves and to other people. Of course, the supreme way in which sex is reduced uh, to... in, into that transaction is in prostitution, isn't it? Prostitution is all, all about personal gain at the expense of another person, another person whom we, we care nothing for. As I heard a representative of uh, prostitutes say recently, it's only in films like Pretty Woman that there's any romance in being a prostitute an activity which is uh, uh, designed then to help us to more fully express that openness and intimacy and love has become in prostitution just a transaction between two lonely, detached and isolated people. I think that's the reason why this prostitute appears in the book of Revelation. Revelation. As we'll see later, she actually represents money more than she represents sex. I think John would tell us she might be more more at work in the minds of people who are watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire than in uh, people who are watching some steamy romance on the television. But the key thing about this prostitute is that uh, she reduces mankind from being a human being who loves and knows other people to being just a shell who has desires and can be seduced and dehumanized. Now before we see that uh, in more detail, I want to just take a little bit of time to get us up to speed with where we are in Revelation chapter 17 before we come to look back at this prostitutes because uh, we've come a long way. If you were um, around on a Sunday evening at the beginning of the series we actually uh, spent some time looking at how to interpret the book of Revelation and I used this overhead at that time to try to show you the structure of the visions. It may have looked a little bit intimidating at the time. But if you've been here over the last few uh, weeks, you will now start to see how it works. First of all, there are these three cycles of seven. There are the seven seals, which are visions of the progress of history. There are um, seven trumpets, which are visions of warning of God's judgment in history and at the end of history. And then there are these seven bowls of God's wrath where his judgment is worked out in history and at the end of history. But we saw then that in the middle of these uh, cycles of seven, there are certain sets of interludes where they pause. Some of them are between the sixth and the seventh element of the cycle, such as these visions of security and salvation. Do you remember where the... uh, Uh, The saints are sealed with uh, the mark of God. There's 144,000 of them and then an innumerable number. Well, they're they're between the 6th and 7th because they are emphatically things that happen during the progress of history, whilst history is is going on. There's another interlude between 6th and 7th here, Revelation 10 and 11. Remember those... uh, uh, those witnesses we were speaking about uh, at that point the role that the church has in uh, in taking the gospel to people and how people will repent in response to the gospel whereas they didn't res- repent in response to the uh, the warnings of the trumpets but the other interludes come after the seventh element of each of the cycles and uh, Uh, There's just a silence after the seventh seal, but then after the seventh trumpet, there is this uh, 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 three-chapter section which really seems to lay bare the heart of what is going on in this world. In a sense, it takes us right up to the very moment when Christ comes again. But it is not just speaking about the last Few weeks or months or years before Christ comes again. No, it's uh, it's after the seventh because now everything is laid bare. Now we can see what's really going on in the world. And we saw in, uh, in chapters uh, 12 to 14 that uh, what is really going on in the world is that there are four characters who are doing battle. It starts off... Uh, Um, by describing a dragon who uh, chased this woman clothed with the sun. Then there were two beasts, a beast out of the sea and a beast out of the earth who were subject to the dragon who is Satan. But then uh, uh, there is the lamb as well, Jesus Christ, who will win the the, the battle. Four characters were shown to us then in Revelation 12 to 14. And now... We've got to the, the period after the seventh bowl. Now all of this is going to be laid bare again. And those four characters will all appear. But it's now at this moment that this fifth character appears, whom we're going to look at this morning. She is a woman. She is a prostitute. So let's uh, spend some time then, first of all, looking at the identity of this prostitute, what it is that she represents. Actually, even before we do that, uh, we have to spend just a little moment looking at uh, the identity of the beast out of the sea who has these seven heads and ten horns because he materializes again in chapter 17 in verses 9 to 11. This calls for a mind with wisdom, says John. A slight understatement, as you'll uh, realize if you've looked at it. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven And is going to his destruction. This is, to say the least, distinctly enigmatic. Clearly, there is a sense in which the beast represents the city of Rome. Rome was built on seven hills, which John says are represented by the seven heads. But then he says in the next sentence that they also represent seven kings five of whom are dead, one of whom is living, and the seventh of whom is to come. Then he says, in fact, that the whole beast itself represents an eighth king who is yet to come, but who belongs to the seventh. Then he goes on in some subsequent verses to say that the ten horns represent ten further kings who will give their power to the beast and who will wage war against the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that people have been distinctly confused about uh, these verses. Perhaps the best way forward in understanding these lies in noticing that John explicitly says that the seven heads can apply to more than one thing. I mean, John clearly had ancient, the ancient Roman Empire in mind and quite which uh, leaders these uh, uh, different heads and horns referred to is much debated by scholars. But the fact that he was thinking primarily of Rome the great force of his day, is very clear. But he sees these images as somewhat fluid. He sees that they can apply in different ways, even to the world that he knows. So whilst Rome is at the front of his mind, he wouldn't uh, doubt that, that, that the image in some sense can apply to any great power in the world. The way that it can be corrupted and made to uh, become anti-Christian, oppressing Christians. We saw that back in chapter 13. And although uh, uh, John adds a little to it, I don't think he adds greatly to our understanding of the beast. The beast represents political power opposed to Jesus But the beast is ridden by this woman. Verse 3 of chapter 17. The angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. This woman must be a potent force indeed, mustn't she? She has... She has uh, greater power than the most oppressive force that John knew of in his day. And she is lavishly adorned, isn't she? The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She holds a golden cup. Surely such a wonderful person must have a wonderful drink in that cup for us to drink, mustn't she? She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Now this great power at work in the world is very attractive and promises much, but in the end she makes people drink filth. What John is saying, he calls her Babylon. The city which in its day was a, was a very attractive superpower and yet which held God's people captive. He calls her a prostitute, verse 5. Its title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and the Abominations of the Earth. Babylon's vice is not primarily sex. That becomes very clear as you read on. For instance, in chapter 18, verse 3, it becomes clear that her primary allure to people has been money. All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. See, she's a prostitute because those who use her have ceased to see themselves primarily as human beings whose great purpose is to love and be loved. They have become lonely creatures whose only obsession is the satisfaction of their craving. But money is actually the currency of that. If the beast represented a a corruption of government, you see, this prostitute represents the corruption of the economy. And in our country, those two centers of power, government and the economy, are separated physically. They have physical representations. The houses of parliament and the square mile of the city of London. Parliament passes laws and can force us to obey them. The city is the center of wealth creation. Its main power is to tempt us to buy. And there is always a sense, actually, in which the economy rules the government. Tony Blair goes to listen to what Rupert Murdoch and Bill Gates have to say to him, not the other way around. Of course, neither the government nor the economic system need be evil. But when a government and its economy becomes corrupt, when society starts to go wrong, the government becomes beast-like and the economy becomes prostitute-like. The government uses its power to oppress people and the economy starts to become a, a... a manipulative, seductive force that turns people from human beings into units of consumption. A prostituted economy, says John, is more powerful than a bestial government. A prostitute sits on the beast. I wonder whether that is so very far from the world that we live in. You know, it seems to me that there are very powerful forces in our modern world which encourage us to be obsessed by what we have rather than who we are. Our children are fed with adverts from a very early age which tell them that they must have the latest doll or the smartest toy car or the best, communi- uh, the best computer game. You know, small, small children are often just happy with a stick and a washing-up bowl, aren't they? But they have that trained out of them because the economy relies on making them into consumers. Money makes the world go round. And then uh, when teenage years come, the teenage insecurities become a major opportunity to impress on young people the dogma that our status is defined by what we have. Finally, when we reach adulthood, the, the uh, economy has its perfectly seduced punter. We own nothing which is second-hand. We borrow money in order to have the possessions that we want. We buy the best house that we possibly could. And then we spend our whole lives as loyal, even terrified employees, living in fear of losing our jobs because of the lifestyle that we must must sustain, using, in fact, most of our hard-earned money to pay for for things that, if we really thought about it, we didn't really need. And it all began when a child, playing happily with a stick in a washing-up bowl, turned and looked at the telly and started screaming for tiny tears. That is the nature of the prostitute. She is very dangerous. The main thing, though, that Paul, uh, uh, John, in fact, wants us to see is the fate of the prostitute. In fact, he says, she meets her comeuppance in a very interesting way. In verses 16 to 18 of chapter 17, the beast turns on its rider. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. That's happened many, many times in history, actually. From time to time, people do become totally fed up with the economic system generally when they, when they see how, how thoroughly it, they have become enslaved clients of that system, then they use might, force, to overthrow the economic uh, status quo. John's immediate uh, concern was the, the overthrow of the, of the Roman Empire, which uh, Christians habitually called Babylon. And that happened long after John's death, the Roman Empire was uh, toppled by brute force, and it was not able to resist it because the economy had become so corrupt. The Russian Revolution is another classic example of that, where force was used. The beast overthrew the prostitute. But of course, within history, you never get a perfect government which follows the new economic status quo, the new government are just as horrific as the last ones. One day, though, says John, finally this economic system will be overthrown. This parasitic form of relationship between uh, between people and, uh, and the economy will cease. God will work out his terrible justice. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 18. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen, I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore in one day... Her plagues will overtake her. In one day, it will be that swift and that final. And it will induce terror, says John, in those whose lives have been bound up with her wealth. Verse 9, when kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. That is the fate of the prostitute. That is the fate of all economic systems which reduce people and make them subhuman. And that is the final fate of that whole system when God finally brings his justice and judgment when Jesus comes again. It will not survive. So how are Christians to respond In uh, verses 4 to 5, John makes it very clear. I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her. crimes. Come out of her. That was the call many, many years ago that uh, God had given to Abraham's cousin Lot when the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, notorious for its sins, was about to be destroyed. They had to flee as fast as they could. Well, says God, Christians need to flee as well because judgment is coming. But then I hear you say, well, it was easy for Lot. That was an isolated city and he could just run away and be safe. We live in a world that is dominated by that, don't we? How can we possibly do that unless we decide to become hermits or go and live on a desert island or something? How can Christians today come out of her in that sense? Well, it's vitally important, I think, that as Christians we think very hard about not becoming clients of a prostituted form of economic power. How can we do that? Well, that's where I think Eric Fromm's insights are so helpful. The question we need to ask, the question we must ask of ourselves as Christians when it comes to our use of money is not, what do my desires tell me I must have? But in fact, what do I need to be the person God has made me? See, everything about our society tells us to ask the question in the first way. What do my desires tell me that I should have? And of course, everybody has a duty to their own desires, don't they? To work as hard as they can to satisfy them. Well, God says something very, very different to us. He says, no, I have made you as I want you to be. I have given you a specific role in this world that I have chosen for you. And you will have just a set of needs in order to be able to fulfill that. Need to start asking that question very, very carefully. There is no simple formula for how to come out of her in the sense that John calls us to, but it is something that we need with boldness and clarity to do, not to be seduced, not to be enslaved, not to be trapped in a system that makes a few people very rich and an awful lot of people. Work their socks off for all of their lives and never really discover who they are. You know, many of us here may think that's hopelessly idealistic. And Babylon is a very, very powerful force. You know, John, perhaps we say, has the advantage of being there in exile on his little island on Patmos. Way away from anywhere, he can call them to come out of her with no problem. What about the slaves in the city of Rome who have no freedom? Well, actually, the Apostle Paul tells us something very, very helpful in that regard. He says that slaves may have to accept that they stay enslaved to a certain extent, though if they can gain their freedom, they should. But he says, even if you are so caught up and trapped in in this world, as so many modern people are, and cannot divorce yourself totally from it, or as much as you would like, in the end, slaves still can be free because they discover that they are working for Christ and not for their master. Freedom in the end is an attitude of mind. I know we live in a real world where there are, there are really difficult decisions to make. We have to pay mortgages. We have to pay into pensions. We have to feed our children. We have to do those things. It is hopeless idealism to think that we could ever divorce ourselves totally from the economic system as it is. But we must not worship it. We worship Christ. We work for Christ. We live our lives for Christ. Now, many people here are in the early years of of adulthood. And I tell you, as the years go on, it becomes harder and harder to maintain that perspective. Establish some rules and patterns now. Do not embark on a path that you can see will, will leave you enslaved. Remain free, because there is nothing more glorious in this world than being free to be the person God has called you to be. I don't know what particular decisions you will have to take, but I do know that to be worshipping, The economic system of this age and the possessions that it offers us is to be as enslaved as someone who cannot help but go back and back again to a prostitute come out of her my people so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues people who are free will be able to echo the great words of heaven on the last day. When the whole system of this world that has corrupted people is destroyed. Hallelujah, verse 19. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. True and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. So where do you stand this morning, personally? See, it is is possible that you realise that um, you have not even started to worship Christ yet, that you are, in a sense, um, enslaved by this system epitomised by the prostitute. And perhaps it is her wealth that attracts you and makes you work for it. Perhaps it's her glamour. Perhaps it's the offer of sexual satisfaction that she gives. I don't know what it is. Let me say to you, can't you see how profoundly enslaved you are? Can't you see how that, that reduces our humanity? Don't you want to be free? Some of us here are perhaps in the, in, the, in the situation that John was writing to primarily. People who are believers but are in great danger of being submerged by the seductive power of this world. That puts us in great danger. Come out of her, says John. And many, many of us here, I trust, are free. I know that very clearly for some of you because I can see it in your eyes. You may be rich or poor, you may be young or old, you may have to work for money or no longer have to work for money, but you are free because you are not ruled by those desires you are ruled by God because you are not dominated by your appetites but you can enjoy being who God has made you you are a satisfied human being rejoice it is a very great privilege now this Christmas then when Chris Tarrant comes on the telly Why not switch him off? Why not forget the lure of a million pounds and be satisfied that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life? What more do you need? O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see how this world enslaves us and loves to keep us captive to our desires. And we pray that you would set us free, Lord, and give us the courage to make what decisions we need to do in order to enjoy that liberty.